quite a bit of uh, more response regarding a celebrity. Uh, who was your celebrity encounter? Um, I met the Beastie Boys at the Logan Campbell Centre in 94. I was 15 and hung out backstage with them, and they were so cool. Very memorable. Katie says, I met the farmer who discovered the terracotta warriors on his farm in Zhan, China. Needless to say... It's not a farm anymore. He just now hangs around the gift shop uh, of what is now a massive tourist attraction. Uh, another one here. I sailed across the Pacific with the drummer of Yes, Alan White. 1979 Windward Passage. Alan was an amazing fisherman and turned uh, our crew onto the best music ever. So um, Joe McCarroll's one uh, was John Travolta. Uh, and John Travolta um, said to Joe McCarroll, yeah, uh, I remember your name. Hi, Joe. And Joe said, well, if you happen to be listening, um, get in touch. So to this, I've got a text just now. Hey, I totally recall Joe. I remembered her in the second interview, but I didn't want to be creepy. You're John Travolta. <laughs> oh, it's, it's amazing great, who listens, right? Great to hear from you. John, I remember you too. Yeah, very good. 25 to 5, the panel. Completely different topic here. One designer has penned an opinion piece and it raises the issue of intensification in the built environment and that well-designed neighbourhoods should be a fundamental, not just a nice-to-have if you can afford it. In other countries, like Germany, design in building is taken very seriously. The same cannot be said, perhaps, of some of the townhouses going up in the likes of Tamaki Makoto or indeed many apartment blocks down Hobson Street, for example. Ben Van Bruggen is an urban designer who has worked here and internationally. Ben, kia ora, nice to have you on the panel. Hi, Wallace. Now, the UK has a government architect. In fact, it's someone that you once worked with. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there was, um, in the in the 90s, under the um, Labour government for the, for the time, they... Um, came up with something called the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, or more commonly known as CABE. Um, and uh, I worked there, and we had this wonderful um, informal strap line of injecting architecture and design into the lifeblood of the nation. I like it. It, it, it came about because government was spending um, a lot of public money on new schools, new hospitals, um, and infrastructure. And a lot of it wasn't necessarily being designed very well or for um, to last. Look at the um, example of Tauranga, Tauranga Library recently, that they're having to um, demolish it and rebuild after just 30 years when the time capsules were meant to be in the building for 100 years. Yeah. Um, what sort of message does that send to the future? If we can't um, design um, well, um, we can't, you know, design good library buildings. Which is exactly why I brought you on, because intensification is a really big issue, of course, but one must be honest, look around you and say, how many of these buildings or townhouses are going to be around in, you know, 30 years? Uh, are you saying that some councils badly need some urban de design advice? Explain the issue for us. Why do we require yeah. good design over and above it just simply being dry and warm? Um, yeah, so I don't know that it is over and above. I think that is part of um, uh, design doesn't have to be something that is simply a kind of a luxury, a, a nice to have if you can afford it. And what I think is that the built environment or the quality of the built environment, it impacts us every day from how we open our door, how we experience the environment around us, how we can move around. So it's too important to kind of be left just to these individual decisions. And we've seen what happens 
particularly in this country, when we get some of those decisions wrong. You know, think about the leaky homes, um, think about mouldy buildings, think about um, congestion and climate degradation and all those kind of things. So what I'm proposing is, is kind of a way that um, government can provide design leadership and vision in how villages, towns and cities can develop so that they are great places to live, not just individual buildings, but the places. And I think that if you have that kind of structure, you start to develop a culture around what good design is and what it means for us here. So in Germany, as you said, um, they think it's so important. They have government departments and they even have a word for it, which is Bauculture, which is about building culture. Mm. Um, the mayor of London, he has 50 design advocates and there are many design panels that come together to help solve some of these issues. Um, and closer to, closer to where we are, Australia has a number of government architects and a network of these government architects that, that um, operate in each state. And they're producing guidance, helping with standards, running competitions. Yeah. The best All right. design outcomes can come to the top. This could be an issue for the, uh, the new mayoralty in Auckland because we had a, uh, uh, a council uh, a design office and it was, um, they got rid of it a couple of years ago or so. Joe, your thoughts? Well, I guess, Ben, I really... I really agree with your reasons for suggesting it because I completely agree that, you know, design and the built environment are, they're a social equity issue. You know, they affect how we live every minute of every day. But I guess I've got sort of two questions. One is, do you really think another standalone kind of bureaucratic organisation will actually seamlessly integrate into our existing um are existing how we manage these things but also how would it be funded because it just seems egregiously unfair if it's funded partly by people who are absolutely locked out of home ownership yeah i think the benefit about having something that's in the central government and actually in terms of um uh you know the government is spending billions and billions and billions the auckland light rail is what, $18 billion in itself. And so the actual design um, agency would just be, it'd be a tiny fraction of that just for that one project, let alone across all of the government projects. So it doesn't need to be something that's kind of expensive and, and adding layers to it. And taking an example from the UK, the Commission for Architecture of the Built Environment was funded from two different departments. Um, and so it wasn't just, just a single um, you know, a single department doing that. And the, the benefit of that was that you actually were working across government. So you're actually trying to create efficiencies, create good use of resources and not add another layer, but bring some of those siloed activities together so that you could develop standards which would um, go forward to make more efficiency, efficient use of resources, for example, as well as creating places that are making us healthy, not unhealthy. Because further down the line, if you if you make places that you can only drive to that are not going to provide good accommodation in daylighting, air quality. You are putting a burden on a health authority, on a health system, and that has, a, okay. has consequences later on. All right, Andrew. Yeah, I guess following on from uh, what Judd said, have you overseas where they're doing this, have they actually seen the results? Have they seen those efficiencies come to pass and, you know, there's more affordable housing. People are able to get good quality homes. Um, congestion times are down. Amenities are closer and all the rest of it. Or or is it just, yeah, my, my worry would be it is just here's another layer of bureaucracy. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that the there are there are 
places and, um, you know, we can look at places like uh, Paris and London in which actually good design is part of them telling the world about what they are and what they stand for. And so they do attract talent and they do attract the best people. They still have all of those issues and, and there's no way that this is going to solve all of those issues. And it's really not about how things look, it's how things would work. Right. So it's actually a way of making places that will, that will work better so they are more affordable in order to be able to do that. Um, you know, my, um, the worry is that we will, we will kind of slip down the world rankings and not be seen as a place that is, um, uh, you know, understanding its identity, its culture, and that coming through in our buildings and our places. So you're saying, because, uh, you know, the government has a chief science advisor with her own department, you're saying, why not a chief design advisor or a prime minister's Aotearoa design office, the ADO? So saying that everybody, everybody in New Zealand is entitled to a building, which is not only dry and warm, but actually looks good as well. It's, a, it's aesthetic. That's, that's an aspect yeah. to being part of a city as well. Exactly. Why, why can't we have nice things? You know, why can't we have things that look, look great? And I think some public buildings um, have, have really, you know, they because they're investing for the long term, they're not, we need to build this, get out and pass it on to somebody else and somebody else can deal with the, the cost implications yep. of what we're doing. They're building it to last. And so they are investing in, in good quality. You know, do you, do you want to be recovering from your heart surgery in a building that's really been designed by the accountants and the cost cutters? Or do you want it designed by an architect working with the clinicians to design it so it's a way that makes you feel better? You know, there, are, there have been studies from the 70s that show patients who had a view out of a window of greenery would recover quicker and patients who didn't. And that's a huge that's interesting. in society. Yeah, interesting. Hey, interesting topic, Ben. Kia Thanks uh, for that. That's Ben Van Bruggen, there, an urban designer who has worked uh, across the world on this particular issue. Um, keen on your thoughts on that. Does it? Do you care? Um, does it really matter to you what uh, a building looks like? Do you mind those, for example, those towers in Hobson Street, which... Um, it's not, it's not an aesthetic thing. Yeah, they didn't take a lot of the designers' time, right? is my view. No. I mean, I, I think it, we don't want to be distracted from the idea about how it looks because actually I think we're talking about how something works. And I think if something has been designed to work well for people to live in and work in and move around, yeah. it tends to be also aesthetically more attractive to us. 15 to 5, the panel are international. Joe McCarroll, Andrew Hogard with me, and lovely to be with you today. Uh, just on that uh, news that we had at the top of the hour, two uh, people have been killed in a shooting in Auckland this afternoon, and the police uh, have been looking for someone. Um, anyway, police say they responded to a report of a gunshot outside a house in Glendean. On arrival, two people were found dead, and cordons are in place on Barry's Road. And Auckland Transport has said that bus route 162 is being detoured due to the police event and told commuters to expect delays. Now, Checkpoint, uh, I understand, is having someone at the scene there and will be bringing you the latest on that particular story. So do stay uh, locked to RNZ on that story. Well, we're in the depths of winter. And while many of us have signed up to a long-term power plan, there are thousands on what is called prepay electricity. In 2019, Consumer NZ found that more than 40,000 households are on prepay. You're more likely to have had a disconnection if you use prepay. In fact, far more likely. 
One mother interviewed for One News said she recalled putting 20 bucks into an account one night by morning, all used up. Her power budget was only around 40 to $50 a week, so the family had to go out in the day to avoid being cold at home. Dr Kimberly O'Sullivan is a senior research fellow at the Hekainga Order at the University of, Wall- of Otago, Wellington. Dr O'Sullivan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Wallace. Um, so th- tell us about prepay. Um, why do people end up using prepay? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons why someone might end up on a prepayment meter. Um, one is if the meter is already installed in a property and then they move into that property, um, sometimes it's hard or expensive to change it to a regular meter. Um, but the main reason really is that if the person is a credit risk or they don't have a good record with their electricity company, it might be the only service that gets offered to them. Reporting of disconnections. Um, do, do, am I... Is it understood that it can be if you don't have the money, it can be disconnected any time, even if there are kids in the home? Yeah, that's right. So it's a bit like a prepay phone, which most of us are more familiar with. If you run out of credit, the service just stops. Hmm. Joe, I guess it's just so sad. I mean, that sounds like something from you know, the 1900s of families clustered around putting a coin in the meter. Um, and, and I think if, if I, I remember reading a couple of years ago, Dr. Sullivan, that the way sort of power price is so different across New Zealand and actually it's skewed exactly wrong. Like in areas with quite higher incomes, people are paying a lot less. And in areas with lower incomes, people tend to be paying a lot more. And obviously partly that's if it's harder to get the electricity to the people. Um, but I mean, that seems to me, we're, we're, it's, it's harder and harder and harder for people who find it hard, and easier and easier and easier for people who find it easy. Yeah, I, I think that's um, that's the irony of the situation, isn't it? Um, there is a large geographic um, difference, you know, across the country um, in terms of what the price of electricity is and. You're right, it's um, it's pretty complicated and it's to do with where we generate electricity and how far it has to travel to get to people. And that's why solutions like distributed solar and things like that are a good idea for, for um, kind of far-flung communities, I guess. But also those technologies aren't always at, on the table for those people that might really benefit from it. And it sounds like um, it sound, the, the irony of it too. Kimberly, is it sounds like quite expensive, you know. Uh, what do you yeah. what do you got here? Um, the issue of twenty bucks spent over the course of a night, and your budget was only forty to fifty bucks anyway. Yeah, a lot of the time there's a fee for disconnecting, and we don't have any rules about what those fees are. There's not a lot of consumer protections in place for people that are on prepayment. There's not great rules about who should be on prepayment, um, like you mentioned, and, and like the mother on the story earlier in the week, she said, you know, it's perfectly fine and acceptable to have children in a house where there's prepayment and and to know that at some point they may well run out of electricity. Um, I think we're making 
some questionable decisions um, if that's how we're willing to treat our most vulnerable people. What's your take on this, Andrew Hogard? Yeah, I guess most of these people would be on, I think, in that story, they're on government support. You'd think government could actually arrange for um, sort of a group discount rate um, for putting all these people on contracts and sort of be involved in the mix in terms of ensuring that the powers are always there. But, you know, because they'd probably be providing quite a large supply, they'd be able to get a decent a discount rate. Um, certainly, I know, you know, if I look on um, my various providers in the agricultural space, um, you know, you're part of a co-op, they're usually able to get you a, a cheaper rate oh. um, for power or petrol. So why on earth, you know, if the likes of Fonterra and Farmlands can do that, why can't the government well, that's a good point. Uh, organise itself to, you know, organise a, a cheap rate for all the um, all the beneficiaries and occupants of state homes, etc.? Yeah, I think that is something that has been looked into, um, but perhaps not with the speed that we might, um, or that people might appreciate. Um, I'm also not sure... Um, how easy it would be to extend that to people who are on prepayment, particularly if they're in a private rental situation. I guess there's a lot of other um, variables there uh, in terms of people moving around and um, people, you know, changing where they live. And but I think Andrew's point that we seem to have all the the benefits of um, that the, we've got all the disadvantages of public ownership and all the um, disadvantages of private ownership in terms of the electricity sector. We don't, you know, we don't have government control that protects vulnerable New Zealanders, but um, we also don't have um, cheap prices. Mm. Prepay electricity. Interesting. Eh? Dr. Sullivan, kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's uh, the Senior Research Fellow, Camille O'Sullivan, uh, at the University of Otago, Wellington, researching prepay electricity. About 40,000 households in Aotearoa are on uh, prepay. Eight to five, Joe McCarroll and Andrew Hogard with me today, um, Friday afternoon. Now, coming full circle on the show today, and it's back to bread. Where is Māori bread in the supermarket? Paraora Rewena is a traditional Māori sourdough that uses a potato starter bug. It's sour, sweet, one of my favourites. Our next guest cannot believe Māori breads haven't already been commercialised. Baking Rewena is a deep tradition in his whānau, and he uses the same bug that's been passed through his family since the 1840s. It's a delight to have George Jackson uh, on the programme. He's the owner of Jackson's Rewena Bread in Whanganui. Kia ora, George. Kia ora, kia ora. Lovely to have you on the programme, the 1840s. Tell us about it. Where did it all start? Oh, I suppose it started for me when I was a kid, and we... um we got it when we were young, yeah. and my nan um, baked it in, her, in the kitchen, and just a lot of family around at that time. I think this is back in the like eighties, nineteen eighties, and yeah, that's where I discovered it as a child, um, and yeah. And now you own a, your own bakery, specialising in uh, Māori bread, Whanganui. Um, pretty popular, pretty successful. How did you get started with the business? Oh, look, um, I, to be fair, I started baking it just at home, like as a hobby. Um, for my kids, my family, 
Um, and that hobby obviously grew into a passion of mine. So, um, yeah, I um, kind of kept bait. Other people started asking for a bread, um, and they would pay me for it. So I would bake them one, and then a couple more people asked. So I was doing, <laughs> ended up doing probably about a couple of loaves a week. So I was like, oh, well. There's something in this, so that's kind of what huh. keeps me going. <laughs> um, we've got yeah. a panel with us. George, I might answer. Yeah. Joe, um, jo, uh, you a fellow bread fan? Definitely. Uh, and so do you distribute outside Whanganui, George? I'm quite keen to get my own yeah. um, hands on a loaf up in Auckland. Yeah, I actually um, delivered some to Auckland last week. Is Good. It all, is it all gone? Can we get into the... <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's put it in bulk okay. order. Uh, Andrew. Okay. okay. Um, I'm just curious about the... Yeah. Oh. Andrew? I was going to say, I was curious about the taste. Um, what other bread type or bakery would it be similar to um, for those that have never tried it before? Um, yeah, no, no comment. Oh, there's, there's, there's none. Like, yeah, because it's a sweet and a sour. Um, it's a yeasty taste. Um, yeah, I, I have never tasted any other bread around that tastes like it. It's something you can't really clone because if you don't use the starter bug, that's because that's the winner. That's the winner, and it's unique. That's and George, I got I got to sneak this in because actually this is really big news. This is really significant news for uh, for you, George and all of Aotearoa. You've recently been selected for the UNESCO Breads of Creative Cities project. Yes. Yeah. Amazing! Congratulations. I've made the bread. Um, uh, recognised as it should, worldwide. It's just fantastic. And yet, George, and yet, you can go into your local supermarket, you can get your Vogels, you yep. can get your Tip Top, Hello. you can get your Bergen, but yep. you can't get George Jackson rear winner. Not yet. What's going to happen? Well, I'm working my way to that. Um, yeah, I'm slowly trying to... Um, grow the business so I can up production and start supplying smaller places like your four squares, get into there and then slowly get a, um, a reputation and then hopefully, well, actually not hopefully, but get my foot in the door at um, our local pack and save Wanganui. Fantastic. Um, and then just, just grow from there. Um, but, but doing it the traditional way it's been made. Oh, George, kia ora for your time. And um, to re- echo uh, Joe, uh, the panel order is coming through to you very soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, look, um, you can reach me on my um, my Facebook page, Jackson's Deal on a Bread. You can message me directly from there, and we can sort out posting some to Auckland. Not oh. a problem. I posted some to Wellington, all sorts around the country, you know. Fantastic, George. All the best and well done. Uh, that is uh, owner of Jackson's Rewinner Bread in Whanganui. And speaking on the food, someone says, do you know what I put in a time capsule? What would I put in a time capsule? Some of Joe McCarroll's jam. Oh. How about that? That's really nice, whoever that is. Is it that good? Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah? I mean, the gherkins are probably the, the real prize. If I give you gherkins, you're a good friend Is it gherkin mine. jam? No, oh. it's normal jams. <laughs> What's the gherkin got to do with it? It's just things I make from the garden. Right. Gherkins, if I give you a jar of gherkins, if you're listening, it's a sign of deep 
love for you. Is it? Yes. Jam, I quite like you. Wonderful stuff. Joe McCarroll, Andrew Hogard. Thank you very much. Big thanks to my wonderful producer, uh, Iana uh, Piper Heady, and doing a stellar uh, job this week. We're taking you out with a little bit of Rio Speedwagon. See you, to mo- see you Monday. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen, right next.